Hi there, this is Christian Horner. You've won the Austrian Grand Prix. <laughs> Hi, it's Alex Albon. Hi, I'm Max Verstappen, and you're listening to the Aston Martin Rebel Racing Podcast. Oh, this feels good. <laughs> And welcome to Talking Ball, the official Aston Martin Rebel Racing podcast. It's a very special edition as we celebrate the team's 300th race in Turkey. Coming up, we'll have a socially distanced roundtable chat with some team members who've been here since the start. But we wanted to kick things off by speaking to two absolute dons of the Aston Martin Rebel Racing team. You don't often see them together these days. It's Christian Horner and David Coulthard. How are you, chaps? Very good, thanks. Yeah, good. Christian, you and Ole Shack, Max's front-end mechanic, have been trackside for all 300 races how does it feel to have never missed a race? Well, I don't want you to jinx me now because I only had my COVID test this morning. So, uh, <laughs> it's gone by in a flash. It seems to have been, you know, so far since the, the first race in, uh, back in 2005. But uh, to think that we've managed to get to 300 Grand Prix is crazy, really. But I suppose, you know, now that we're doing sort of 23 races a year from next year onwards, uh, 500 will come up even quicker than the 300. When you were first uh, considering signing as team principal, what were your memories from back there? It was like, how did I talk myself into this? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, Ollie, um, there were two friendly faces that, that I saw when I got there. And one was DC and the other was Ollie. And Ollie had worked in a rival team in the, what was the equivalent of now Formula 2, that, where, I, where I'd come from. And so I, I, I knew Ollie a little bit. And when I walked in, he was... The only guy that looked pleased to see me, you know, because obviously there have been a lot of changes. The team had gone from being Jaguar into Red Bull and there was a lot of changes in the management and so on. But, um, you know, DC had been signed, you know, a couple of weeks previously and I knew that DC was going to be a part of the team. And I think, thank God, there's somebody I can talk to that, that you know, talks normally that, well, with a funny accent, but um, that I can understand. You know, he'd just come from McLaren. He'd... Uh, had all these the, the, these wins and driven for you know Williams and McLaren the top teams of the time. So who better person to tap into than DC and all his knowledge and experience and say so, okay, you know how does this compare to what you're used to? You know we were just miles away to begin with, but uh, you know having DC within the team was was uh, a massive asset um, you know for us as we started to put the building blocks in place for the future. DC, what was it like for you to sign? What, how big a decision was that? Well, it, it was a huge decision, quite honestly. And, and the timelines of what Christian mentions there, you know, is a long time ago. But in my mind's eye, I was aware that Christian would be part of the Red Bull Formula One team because I decided that in its previous guise, which, um, you know, there's no point pretending it wasn't called Jaguar, I had decided there's no way I'm racing for them. And I decided I was retiring from Formula One if that was my option. But having uh, saw that Red Bull were serious about buying the team and then ultimately buying the team and that Christian would be part of it and knowing that this was now going to be not a report-driven organization flying out to Detroit, you know, four times a year to present pretty bits of paper and pictures of underachievement. I really believed in the potential. And when you work with people that are regular winners and Christian was exactly that in, in running his Formula 3000 team, then even you know, success, it's something where if you're good enough, 
you're old enough. And if you're good enough, you're not too old. And Formula One ultimately is the pinnacle of motorsport. But ultimately, it's filled with a lot of young uh, first-time drivers, first-time team principals, first-time number one mechanics, whatever it happens to be. Somebody has to do it for the first time. And there's a great amount of of trust in in exactly, you know, empowering people into that role. So I had every reason to retire when it was Jaguar and every reason not to retire um, under Christian's leadership with Red Bull. And, you know, it's not just me as an ex-driver reminiscing. If you look on the last 300 races, you know, 10 years since their first world championship, four back-to-back world titles, everything that was set out in those early blueprints of, of what the team needed to achieve in the future ha- has been achieved. And of course, there'll be more achievements in the future. I mean, I guess Red Bull don't do things by halves. The expectation at the start must have been pretty high, Christian. How, what did it feel like at the time? Well, there were no specific goals set other than to be as competitive as we could be, as quickly as we could be. And, you know, Dietrich and Malachitz, the owner of, of Red Bull, you know, he's very passionate about the sport. He'd sponsored teams. He'd been a shareholder in Salva. But this was the first time that he had control and total ownership of a team. And, you know, he just encouraged us to adopt all of Red Bull's you know, philosophy of, you know, not being afraid to take on the establishment, doing things differently and, and having some fun, you know, along the way. And, um, you know, that's how we set off. And I think in the early days, we had a bit of a reputation because we played the music loud in the garage and in our hospitality area, the energy station. You know, we had all these different activations going on and, and each market would be throwing a party when the Grand Prix was in town. And people, I think, didn't take us particularly seriously. They thought us, uh, us as you know, everybody wanted a ticket to go to the Red Bull party. Um, you know, that was one of the objectives of the of the weekend. And I think, but underneath that was this, you know, real determination just to, um, you know, put together the best race team that we possibly could. And that's all about people and getting the right people. And, and that's where David was so invaluable in that, you know, in those formative you know, years that in attracting the right, you know, the right people. And, and you know, Adrian was a, uh, was a key one, but there were so many others, you know, whether it was the likes of, you know, Jonathan Wheatley that we'd known from karting days or, um, you know, Paul Monaghan pedals that, that uh, you know, DC had worked with previously. And, and you know, tapping into his experience um, was, you know, hugely valuable at that period of time as we were, building the foundations for something for the future. I mean, you mentioned Adrian there. Like, DC, you'd driven his cars before. What, what, what did it mean for Red Bull when Adrian signed and how did the cars develop from that point onwards? Well, I think that, all credit to Christian, that Adrian had been approached, I think, by every single team in, in Formula One over the, the, you know, the previous decade or more that he'd been involved. And he had a, a high strike rate of success and was considered, you know, the man to have on board uh, to lead a technical team. Of course, it's not down to one individual, but certainly his his standards, the the, the way he he lays out his vision for what can be achieved within any set set of regulations, challenges the rest of the technical team to to be at their very best. So, in in actually, in in full credit to Christian, he was the one that came and said, well, what do you think about Adrian? And I, I think because I thought it was such a long shot, it hadn't really come into my mind as we were going through, how do we find, you know, clearly it wasn't a winning combination that was there at that moment. 
And uh, in, in the calm way that Christian approaches these things, he said, well, why don't we just have a dinner with him and just see how we get along? And it was as simple as that. It was about building relationship and about Christian getting to know Adrian and about Adrian getting to know Christian and then taking the next steps to, to introducing Red Bull and, and the organization on a wider level. And it was pretty quick, Christian, wasn't it, that you were able to you were agree quick. the principle you were quicker than Tinder. Um, <laughs> off. You know, in those, in those days, it was like the, a, a matchmaker. And, uh, without all the perks, though, without all the perks, we, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, DC obviously having driven, you know, cars of Adrian's and Williams and at McLaren, obviously knew him incredibly well. And he said, you know, what you need to do is you get a dinner with Adrian and his wife. Um, because, you know, let's face it, the wives make all the decisions. And so we arranged this, this dinner in the Bluebirds in, in London. And, um, and yeah, that's where it all, all started. And, and DC was, was talking to Adrian's wife about everything and anything that allowed me then to have a conversation with Adrian about, and it turned out we'd grown up in, you know, the same part of the UK. We'd went to schools that were almost next door to each other. Okay, so albeit distanced over time, but, um, you know, we had many things in, in common. And I think what Adrian you know, saw was that, you know, he was inquisitive, why had DC come and what did he find when he got there? And, you know, was it fun? Was it as, you know, because I think he felt, you know, slightly stifled at, at McLaren and this, this team that was full of energy and, and ambition, not quite sure how we we're going to achieve it. But, you know, with the backing of Dietrich and, and, and Red Bull and the brand behind us, it really appealed to him. And, and then we went off on a, a covert trip to Austria to, to meet Dietrich. Adrian was still under contract to McLaren at the time, so it was supposed to be in disguise. And when David got off the aeroplane, there was a bunch of tourists at the, the Red Bull hangar in, in Austria, and they all immediately recognised and wanted to have selfies. And I think Adrian's then wife was going into meltdown that he was about to be sued by Ron Dennis. But, um, you know, he met Dietrich, and, and, you know, again, Dietrich sold him what the Red Bull dream was. And Adrian totally bought him. We sent him off in an alpha jet and landed on a lake. And DC was flying the plane at one point. I mean, it, it was it was ridiculous. And then we found out how much money he was earning at McLaren, and he was nearly sent straight home. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then Dietrich, you know, he he backed it all the way and said, no, he's the right guy for our team, and and the rest is history. But uh, yeah, it was it was quite a lot of fun in those early days. I'm enjoying the idea of F1 Tinder. Maybe this could be something for a future season. Uh, it'd definitely be, it'd be high speed, wouldn't it? It'd be high performing. What, what a statement of intent that was for, for what Red Bull was going to be. Absolutely, because as soon as Adrian joined, people started taking us seriously. They think, well, Christ, if the most successful designer of all time has walked out of McLaren, who had just narrowly missed out on both championships through reliability issues, you know, if he's prepared to do it, there must be something good going on there. You know, DC's there, Adrian's there. And then off the back of that, you know, the likes of guys like Rob Marshall recruited from Renault. And as I say, Jonathan Wheatley joined us from, from Renault. And, you know, different personnel, key people that are still with us today came into the team. But, you know, definitely having Adrian join was a turning moment that we went from being the party team to, well, these guys actually you know, are serious about what they're doing. DC, did you notice a change in the team at that point? Did things get a bit more serious? Well, for me, it was always serious. And, uh, you know, I think that what Christian says is, is correct in terms of how the paddock perceived us. But the reality is we knew, you, you, you know, you need to crawl before you can walk. So, we, you know, there was a process we had to go through in terms of understanding where the car was at, where the team was at, 
who were the people that felt that they were on the same journey with the same vision and the same hunger. Uh, you know, I, I was obviously a few years into my Formula One career, but I was very much re, re you know, my passion and, and energy was reignited by the opportunity. You know, Christian was in his, in his first role as a team principal in Formula One and, and clearly brought all that, that energy and desire as well. And, you know, when you lead from the front like that, I think it, you find out very quickly who's with you, who's prepared to, to you know, walk at that pace and those that were just along for the, the previous ride. So it takes time to work your way through that process. So it was never anything other than serious. Of course, I enjoyed the parties. You know, I've been around the Formula One scene long enough to know that at the end of a, a hard day's work, you should have a hard night of play. Um, so that, that was right up my street. There's no question about that. But and so in that respect, I was a, a good fit for Red Bull. But it never was a distraction from what we wanted to achieve. And that's why even though the, the real success came, you know, a couple of years after I retired, I was just part of, of a process and I served my time and, and served my purpose. But it was, I've always felt very you know, proud of what the, the, the team has been able to achieve because, uh, and continues to achieve actually today, even though the world championships are not in the bank uh, as we speak, but you know, consistently producing uh, world championship uh, potential cars, race winning cars. And the, the point that Christian just made about retaining key staff, that's very unusual. In a, in a sport like Formula One, where people tend to get, you know, itchy feet after a few years. And I think that says a lot to, uh, about Christian's leadership, you know, empowering people and letting them get on with their job. I mean, Adrian's been with the, with the team ever since. I think there are 100 team members who have been with the, the team right from the start. Does that make you feel proud, Christian, that people want to stay for so long? Yeah, I think it's part of the culture that we've ha- we have here that it very much is a team. And, you know, uh, DP is still part of that team. Um, you know, as, a, as, as an ambassador for us. So there's people that have been here, not just from, from Jaguar, but from the team prior to that as Stuart Grand Prix. And even prior to that, as Paul Stewart Racing from when DC was a whippersnapper coming through in, you know, Vauxhall Lotus and Formula 3. There's, there's some of his mechanics that are still here that are, you know, out in Istanbul this weekend doing a show run. You know, like sort of Tony Burrows and Dave Boyce and, and you know, there's some, some, some of the backroom staff are still here. And it's great that, you know, we've still got that, that DNA, you know, embedded within, within the team. And, uh, you know, when, uh, when we mentioned that, well, Jackie hasn't been around recently, but when sometimes when he comes around on a visit, because he still obviously treats the factory like his, you know, there's a mild sense of panic from those hundred employees that start tidying things like mad and clearing their desks just in case Jackie's going to come, you know, come past them. So, um, and that's why actually um, we're going to call um, one of the buildings, the Stuart building in deference to you know, Jackie's involvement in the early days, you know, in the team. So where I'm sitting now is Jackie's old office. And so this building will become the Stuart building. We'll have the louder building. We'll have the rent building and uh, a Vettel building as well. And who knows, there may even be a, a cool tar building to come that has some form of nightclub in it uh-huh. <laughs> um, as the campus continues to grow. I mean, that must feel pretty special in itself to have started something from scratch and then get to a stage where you have a campus, where, where campuses, uh, buildings have names. Like this, this, is, this is legacy stuff, no? The team has grown so, so much, but its DNA has remained the same. At the end of the day, we're a racing team and it's about two cars on a Sunday afternoon and everybody's focused and energy is about those two cars. And so, you know, that, that philosophy hasn't changed for us and our ability to have to react and adapt 
to situations as they as they arise is I think what you know has been one of the strengths you know of this team. But it has changed. We you know we we'll be opening the campus in the new year. Um, you know what what uh, Red Bull has done for Milton Keynes is quite quite incredible. And bringing all that technology here and how we can use that technology and other applications as well is quite exciting. Um, I want to take you right back to both of you back to that first podium in Monaco which I think was, was pretty memorable for many reasons, but not least that the actual outfits on the, on the, on the podium, DC. You were, you were in a cape, no? Yeah, absolutely. We, we had the association with um, the Superman franchise on that weekend. And as we speak, I'm sitting in my office in Monaco and I have a, a picture of that car uh, on the wall. Um, and then I think it was the following year we had the, the Star Wars franchise. But anyway, the Superman one was uh, fitting for that first podium. Um, and I wore the cape on the podium and I think uh, it was the same cape that Christian used to cover his his sizable manhood when he <laughs> kept his side his side of the bargain by jumping in the Red Bull swimming pool naked after the race if we'd got a podium so um, yeah it, again it just it, it shows the sense of uh, you know the team was growing uh, getting some success but not taking itself you know, obviously taking work seriously and what we wanted to achieve, but not taking ourselves too seriously. And I think that's an important part of why I think Red Bull has fundamentally changed the, the, the whole atmosphere within the Formula One paddock. Prior to that, you never went into anyone else's hospitality. You, you, you barely spoke to other teams for fear of getting in trouble from somebody. And Red Bull came with his open door policy with the energy station and said, everybody's welcome. And it was, it was weird to watch in the early days, people from other teams walking in thinking they're going to get electrocuted or something, you know, uh, maced. Um, and, and then over time, as Christian mentioned, it became a place where people would come and meet and hang out. And it's become a, a much friendlier place in the last decade. So, so the bet was that you would strip naked and jump in a pool on the first podium, Christian, is that right? The bet was bloody stupid. And the reason I don't bet <laughs> um, that car in 2006 had barely finished the race. It overheated at Silverstone in about five degrees ambient in December. So we arrived in Monaco and um, because Monaco is a slightly different weekend, on Wednesday evening, I think, uh, in the Columbus Hotel, Martin Brundle, who was advising DC, you know, at the, at the time, said, oh, David's always been very strong here. I, you, know, I've, you know, he'd had a few drinks. Uh, and he said, I really think we can be on the podium now. We hadn't even looked like qualifying in the top 10, let alone finishing on the podium. Um, and I said, look, if, if DC finishes on the podium, I'll jump into the swimming pool. In fact, I'll jump in naked into that swimming pool if we finish on the podium here. And of course, DC did a great job in qualifying. We qualified you know, higher than we would normally. We were, I think we were in the top 10. And then he started making progress in the race and we're up to eighth and then sixth and then you know, fifth and... And there's a bit of action ahead and that we benefited from and strategically, we were, you know, we, we, we were sharp. And suddenly he's, he's running, you know, in the top three. And I'd forgotten all about this stupid throwaway line I'd made, uh, you know, on Wednesday night um, to, to Martin. Anyway, uh, DC Julie crossed the line and everybody was hugging each other and very excited. You know, Martin then announced that this has cost Christian a jump naked into the swimming pool. DC then announces it on his radio just to rub salt into the wounds as well to say, looking forward to seeing you get your kit off. And then, of course, I thought, oh, what have I agreed to do? So I, I thought I would be able to get away with it, you know, after darkness, 
I'm a man of my word. I'll honour the bet, but I'll do it when nobody's looking. All right, because nobody wants to see that. Um, and anyway, so we walk back from the paddock in Monaco, which obviously a bit set away from the where the energy station was floating. And it was the first time I think we'd had the swimming pool on the energy station that uh, that weekend. And the world's media is there waiting for me. I think I can't get out of this. I'm going to look a complete wuss if I don't, you know, if I don't get on with it. So um, DC very generously gave me his his cape to protect my modesty, and um, and I had to get on and get it done. But I've learned never ever make a bet with either DC or Martin Brundle. You know, I gave up betting after that. It's good to hear the cape got more use, though. What got his money worth out of that? It's been used a few times since then, I can assure you. You know, we at Red Bull believe in getting value out of uh, any any props that are used, and it's become a personal favourite of my wife's, actually. Yeah. I just remember when DC went on the podium seeing Flavio Briatore, who was going there to collect the constructors, over his face as DC swooped onto the podium with a cape. <laughs> <laughs> What the hell's going on? Yeah, Alonso gives you a little glance as well, doesn't he? He's not quite sure yeah. what's going on. I remember a member of the, the media in the press conference afterwards uh, commenting that they thought I looked like a tit on the, <laughs> on the podium, to which I reminded him that Michael Schumacher, uh, Rubens Barrichello and Jean Todd had worn red wig, curly wigs on the podium in Malaysia one year. And I said, I think that trumped me and our Superman cape. And plus, I did ask Prince Albert's permission if he minded me doing it, and he was very supportive of it. So, hey, Red Bull style. We look better, and we got royal approval. <laughs> What's been some of the other big memorable moments over the last 300 races, Christian? Obviously, winning the titles. I wouldn't imagine that first um, victory and podium in China. There's been loads of them. I mean, the first race in, in, in Melbourne was a you know, it was a memorable moment. And then going, you know, through the formative years, you know, the first podium and then the first win, yeah, in China was massive. And not just a win, I want to, to finish. Um, that was, you know, that was huge. Suddenly, you know, you really arrived, you know, at that point. And then, um, and then, of course, off the back of that, we built and built into 2010 and that first world championship um, going down to the wire, in, um, in, in Abu Dhabi, where both drivers were in contention. Uh, and to come out of that with Sebastian winning and becoming the youngest ever world champion, you know, was, was phenomenal. And then, you know, to repeat it again and again and again uh, was incredibly, you know, rewarding. And, and now, you know, obviously in, the, in recent times, you know, Max jumping in the car, winning on his first, first ever time, seeing Daniel Ricciardo, you know, win some great races for us. Mark drove some great races for us. So there's been so many, you know, many highlights, winning the British Grand Prix, winning Monaco. Um, so, yeah, there's been a, a, a lot of highlights. It's difficult to pinpoint, you know, one uh, out of those 300. Is there anything you'd do differently? I wouldn't make a bet with Martin Brundle, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you're always learning in this business. So, of course, you look at races and you could have, done things differently you could have you know operated so I think that's the biggest thing about Formula One is that you're always learning so um, but I think the decisions that we made at the time with the knowledge we had you know we got more right than we've got wrong and um, I think that yeah I think that you know generally um, 
I would I wouldn't I wouldn't really change anything with the knowledge that I had you know that I had at the time. DC, you've of course um, as we've mentioned, stay connected to the team. How has the team and the sport changed over the last what 14, 15 years? Well, I think the core of what Formula One stands for remains true to the the early period of Formula One, which is about humans and machines trying to be in perfect. So with any given set of regulations, it's about trying to exploit as best you can. Um, And I love the expression that Adrian uses very often. You read the regulations to not only see what they say, but actually to see what they don't say, because what they don't say very often lies the opportunity to innovate and to steal a march on your competitors. And so I think that, you know, as a non-technical person, what I actually reflect on my career with the greatest enjoyment is the fact that I've been able to work with educated, uh, creative designers, engineers, you know, hardworking team members that are driven to give their absolute all. And, um, you know, Christian mentions Ollie as an example of someone that's been with the team right from the very beginning. And since the beginning, his, his can-do attitude, his that's not a pro- problem look on his face when you ask him something, is just inspiring. It really is wonderful to be around because everyday life, as I've recognized when I retired from Formula One, is somewhat underwhelming because people have got an excuse for everything, why they can't do it, who's let them down, why it's a problem which there's no place for that in Formula One. Of course, there's many challenges, but you know what Christian deals with all the time and, and creating opportunities for the technical team with what the technical team then just, you know, have to deal with in, in trying to deliver things to manufacturing and then what they have to deliver to the mechanics to build the car are just challenges and challenges have solutions if you choose to look for them. So the, the whole industry, I think, has remained the same. Um, and in the same way that you can compare a you know 2020 footballer to a 1950s footballer in terms of health and fitness and blah blah blah, but the core of what drove them to be the best at their given time is the same. So a long way to say I don't think a lot's changed. And what it will always be, and Christian mentioned this right at the very beginning. It, and sorry, Christian, I can't remember your exact words, but basically you mentioned the human element. That, 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 you know, your greatest asset within Red Bull are your your human assets rather than the, the super duper machine that sits in the corner, it can only churn out great products if the human element gives the right program. What so, about the uh, the parties? Are they better now or are they better back then? Well, they haven't been any uh, this think- year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're all Zoom parties. Uh, but, you know, I, I think you work hard, you play hard. And I think that, that this team, when people look in the garage, they see we play our music louder than the others. There's a vibe, there's a buzz and people feed off that. And if you enjoy what you do, you do it that much better. That's why there's people, you know, walking around the factory in jeans and t-shirts or shorts if they want to, or whatever, you know, whatever. There's a different vibe here. It's not a suit and tie, you know, environment. And, you know, everybody knows what their role is. Everybody knows what the, you know, what the task is. And people like, you know, Ollie, who's been there from the very beginning. When you see Max hit the wall on his outlet in, in Hungary, if there's any team that can get it turned around, you know, I believe it's our team. And, you know, Ollie in the thick of the action there with, with, with Leroy and all the guys on that car. If anybody was ever going to be capable of, you know, getting that car fixed and turn around and then for it to finish on the podium, you know, it's those guys and it's that energy that just runs through the whole, you know, the whole team. That's why we upset Toto Wolf so much. 
you up for another 300 races, Christian? Uh, well, look, I was 31 and I'm 46 now. So, yeah, what does that take me to? So uh, do the maths. Yeah, hopefully, I'll, uh, hopefully I'll still be going. You never know. But the way that Chase is putting in races, I reckon another three years will probably be there. Done. Easy. Simpler. <laughs> Yeah. Christian DC thanks for joining us on Talking Ball it's been great to talk to you thank, thank you, you some incredible stories in there and a lesson never to make a bet with Martin Brundle as they mentioned the success of the team is always put down to the human element we wanted to talk to four of the best in the business these guys have been with the team since the very start and in some cases even earlier than that over to you fellas hiya I'm Ole Shack. I uh work here at Red Bull Racing. I do the front end of Max Verstappen's car. Hi, I'm Dave Boys. I'm racing build manager responsible for car builds and turnaround. Hi, I'm Will Courtney. I'm head of race strategy. So I go to the races and make decisions on when we make pit stops and what tires are going to fit. Hello, I'm Tony Burrows and I'm the support team manager. Right. What makes this team different to others? Well, when Red Bull bought it in 2004, end of 2004, I think it was a very regimented team of... Uh, you know, this is how we go racing. Suddenly Red Bull turned up and did it completely different to everybody else. We had an energy station, we had very loud music in the garage and they had a desire to win. It took a couple of years, but a couple of years later we were actually world champions. So I think that's what makes it different to other people. What did your first day look like with the team? It's difficult to completely remember, but I've always think thought of it as being um, a good day or so. Um, was pleased that Mr. Matchett's brought the team. Um, obviously an evolution from, from Jaguar Racing, but all in all, yeah, I think it was a great day. I was originally with Stuart Grand Prix, and that involved them from Stuart Grand Prix into Jaguar Racing, and from there obviously on to, on to Red Bull Racing. I think the first time that we heard that Jaguar Racing wasn't going to compete anymore, so I think there's a few nervous people, but once we heard that the Red Bull, Racing, the Red Bull were going to take the company over, I think everyone was obviously very, very happy. My first day here, gosh, I don't remember that. That was a long time ago. I think I was pretty fresh out of university, so it was all pretty new and exciting. Um, I remember I had a, an old Vauxhall Nova with a, with a painted yellow stripe down the middle, and I was, <laughs> I was a bit embarrassed about driving up in that, so I parked it around the corner so that no one would see it before, uh, before I walked into the office. And uh, I got away with it for a bit, but eventually I had to fess up to it. But uh, yeah, that was probably the thing I remember most about my first day. I mean, the first day Stuart Grand Prix, I mean, I was a gearbox mechanic then, so, um, and it was pandemonium, we were just leaving to go to our first race, and uh, I started a bit later than the others that had already gone through the hell the two months before that. No, it was great, it was, it, it was good, and the first day of Red Bull, things changed really quickly, you know, I think the whole atmosphere of the team changed. It got quite down, didn't it, towards the end of the Jaguar years, it was... Uh, it's quite a dark time, but um, yeah. it was a breath of fresh air as soon as Rebel turned up. We got some good people in, and uh, the whole atmosphere just changed massively. Am I correct in saying it just went from sort of that end of that Jaguar, they just decided to do one car test team to a two car test team. Yeah. So I think that's how I joined, was like, we're now <coughs> setting up a two car test team. I yeah. literally just about joined, and then, yeah, Ford's pulling the plug on this. Oh, brilliant. I finally yeah. got my foot through the door, and that's it. Those were those, really two car testing, so 20 tests a year. Yeah. Busier than racing, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. Well, every time a race car was on track, as soon as that turned itself off, you were, we were racing somewhere else with yeah. the test team, yeah. And no racing or testing curfew. You worked all yeah. day and all night. Okay. Yeah, they've got it easy now, haven't they, really? When you think about it. By comparison. <laughs> <laughs> the curfew's the best thing they ever did before. <laughs> <I think. laughs> 
Yeah. One gearbox for six races, eh? Yeah. yeah. Easy. I still remember DC walking into the garage, gave us a sort of a bit secret who this driver was going to be, and yeah. it just went numb and nobody said anything because there was this big driver from McLaren that was, you know, been fighting for championships yeah. and all this, and, and he just said, oh, bloody say something. You know, he's very, yeah. very basic, isn't he? And he's like, it's only me. <laughs> And yeah, got on with it. It's quite strange actually because he wanted to see if we were a serious outfit, and yeah. so he'd just come from McLaren. So I don't he, think he was signed up, was he? No, nah, he wasn't he was signed up. Of... He said, "Let me just do a test for you first. I'll see if you're serious, and then uh, and then I'll sign." And uh, by the end of it, yeah, he was convinced. Yeah. I you think convinced you... him, Ollie. Well done, mate. Did I really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I did cross his seatbelts the first one, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably why he didn't dare doing anything else. <laughs> No, I think he was a big part of getting it started up, wasn't he? To yeah, you know, to believe in what what do we need to be yeah. a competitive team? And he was to the only one forward. who really knew coming from a top yeah, team exactly. of how to drive us to the front. Yeah. We needed someone like him, and he was a uh, magnificent in starting the ball rolling. He wasn't here for the successful parts towards the end, but the building to that the part building blocks was of all him really. Sort of set up him by him. Yeah. Right, I got one here. Who was your favourite and most challenging driver to work with? They're all favourites as long as they're quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there's no doubt DC was quite demanding coming from a, a big team. He could have seat belts that was four mil longer one side than the other side and grip tape on here and dry ice in his seat to keep himself cool. So he was, you know, his body was performing at its best. And uh, he was very demanding with that for yeah. sure. But he knew what he wanted. Uh, there's no doubt that Max, he's... Remember he's moaning about the mirrors. Oh, God, we were ready to cut them off. moaning about his um, mirrors. Vibrating now again. And he actually blamed an accident with Massa yeah. in Australia in 07 on that. I couldn't see him in my mirrors. Yeah. And that was when it. the mirrors were on the barge boards. <laughs> oh, to be fair, when you sat in the car for a five, you couldn't actually see anything in it. No. It was vibrating. And, you know, for him, it was so crucial, obviously, to, to have those bits around him where I think I set them for max once every year or something. <laughs> Just, yeah. As long as I can see my tyres, that's it. Then I'm happy. The but funny thing was for the RB5, those, you say the mirrors, you couldn't see anything in them because they were vibrating so much. Sat on the side pot two metres away. I remember constantly moaning about that and Adrian <laughs> saying, just drive the bloody thing here. You know. A couple of years later, we took the RB5 to Goodwood and Adrian drove the RB5. And then when he came back, he said, don't sell C- DC for God's sake, but I couldn't see a bloody thing in the mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> I think today the, the, the mirrors are probably even more cruising than they were those days because the way the drivers look at their tyres constantly and you know, it, you know how the tyres is performing and a lot of the time they actually look at them yeah. constantly to, to say yeah I got blistering coming I got this they're looking alright where before that it was more to see if you got lapped I think yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> but no they're all they're all challenging to work with for sure some some are very very uh, you know I've had a fair few of them Seven wanted to do the steering wheel on his own there's various bits and bobs he wants to do on his own and uh, where Max is very relaxed he just he's, I think he's been told by his old man years ago when he was karting yeah. that do not fuss around with your pedals or your seat belts because the pedals are literally two stems of, of you know in a go-kart so just treat the rest of your career the same mm. so uh, yeah he's very easy to work with for sure what is your proudest or most memorable moment obviously our first win I think that was uh, a really really proud memorable moment but the first championship that was just outstanding. I just couldn't believe, as a person, I'd ever, I'd ever see myself being, you know, being involved with a, a world championship. I remember that so well. I mean, it's such huge emotions. I mean, up until that point, yes, we, we won some races, um, but you can never see the team evolving into being championship winners. And ultimately, once, once you saw the, the intention of Red Bull, the drive motivation of people within the team, it was, it was amazing. And, yeah, for us to go and win a world championship, our first world championship, was 
incredible. It's almost like two. Because you set, we won the constructors in Brazil, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. Which were a great time with you. We had those hats on with those yeah. horns. And, all. and then the week after, when Seb won it, it was almost like two weeks on a row where it was like two big events yeah. instead of winning it all at the same weekend. We sort of had it spread out. Yeah, well, it was always in deficit, always. So it was always in deficit in terms of power. But yet we had such a, it's such a good car. The design of the car was so good. Yes, you made hard work, hard work out of it when you saw how quick that car was and yeah. we didn't win it before the end. Yeah, clever car. Abu Dhabi 2010, that was quite a race. Never lead that championship oh. until that day. Yeah, and I came so close to messing it all up as well. That was the, the scariest thing because we were, we pitted. Your strategy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, could, I could have thrown it all away because Mark ran out of tyres, so we pitted him. Alonso pitted the following lap to, to cover him and, and Seb's tyres were going off as well. So. We were about to pit him too, and then just as we were about to call him in, Ooh. unbelievably, suddenly the tyres recovered and he, and he stayed out and yeah, went on to win it. And then, if we pitted him at that point, he probably wouldn't have won the drivers' championship. No, I remember didn't. standing on the grid there that day because Mark and Alonso, I think it was a couple of points between them, and we had no one around us on the grid. No one, because nobody's interesting, said because he was miles behind in the champ. He was the outsider yeah. almost. Yeah. Like yeah. Hamilton, I think, could have won it that day as well if all of the other ones had DNF'd or mm. something. So we had no media, no nothing. We just stood there, all right. <laughs> and we looked back and the whole of Alonso's car, they had to get barriers around and grits all because there was so much media around them. Yeah. And we were just left on our own sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like they forgot that Seb could, in theory, win it that day. I've got to admit, I did actually on the day. I remember watching it, but that's it. And it's done now, it's all finished. And then you start thinking, yeah, hold on. <laughs> he, no, he could actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden the penny dropped that he had just as much a chance. Yeah. Then also the RB8 went on when Vettel had a shunt with Senna. Yes. Mm. Yeah. On the first lap and that was, I mean, that was despair, first of all. I mean, because there's so much damage. And then after that, obviously, he had to go and, had to go and finish in the points. Mm. But he thought starting from the back of, well, where he was by then, the back of the field. That was an amazing drive. But if you look back how to 2010, how close, you know, we were so down in Korea. You know, when Seb's engine blew up with 10 laps to go from the lead, we gifted a win to Alonso, and it's just all falling into his hands. And how are we ever going to claim that many points back? Yeah. Yeah. And then you go a couple of races later, actually, it was a DNF for both cars that uh, I think Weber yeah. had a big yeah. accident and took Rosberg out and chassis tubbed it. And it was just oh, in Korea as well, like five hours to the airport the next morning. Yeah. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of all the places. <laughs> And then a couple of races later, you know, we managed to claim the points back again and, and win it. Mm. Is there a particular race that stands out from the last 300? The one, as I, was, I said earlier, I was, we're talking about it, it was um, Brazil, the second championship, I think it was. 2012. When, uh, when he spun the on the first lap and then raced right through. Yeah, it was Senna. It was so different a race for us to watch because we were at a show car event up on the salt flats in uh, Buenos Aires in Chile. So we were filming up there. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, it was just, uh, it was barking mad. And then uh, we, I remember us coming down, we were watching the, the screen. Uh, we had this little TV set up in the corner and we, we stopped to go and watch the race. And, uh, and the disappointment of him spinning, oh. you know, it was just <laughs> devastation. Laps, Things were getting thrown around the room. It was just... Uh, Alonso got it now. It. Yeah. And then to see the charge back was just... 
Didn't the weather changed every yeah. bloody 10 minutes as well, didn't yeah. it? We did like yeah. four pit stops. Yeah. And I remember that really well because they were saying, oh, the tyres starting to go off. Like, okay, well, we better bang in. Put, brought and his in, radio put didn't work. Fresh tyres on. Then his radio didn't work. Lap, lap later, <laughs> it starts raining. So we're like, oh, no. <laughs> so, we, so we bring him in. I remember looking over the pit wall and Adrian's there with his head in his hands like this. <laughs> oh, I said, I've lost my job now. Yeah. <laughs> luckily, we got away with it. Because I'm quite sure he lost his radio there. Because there's no in, in nothing from his radio on the inlap and all that, mm. because they got water in whatever yeah. in his balaclava, and we couldn't hear him. So I remember for half a lap, Rocky was shouting, "Box, box, box!" Yeah. And obviously, various people were like, "Yeah, yeah, we've heard it." Yeah, but he hasn't. <laughs> you know, no, we okay. wasn't sure he's heard it. Yeah. And on a, and a race like that, where weather condition is changing and all, it's probably the radio is the most crucial thing, isn't it? Yeah, if he yeah. passes the pit lane on that and spins off, well, so why didn't you call me in? Well, we tried. Yeah, but for that, I mean, we thought it was going to be Alonso's championship. Oh. Well, mid-season we were 40 points behind. Yeah. You know, that's... Yeah. I'm sure when we started after Spa, we were like 40 points behind or something. And to be honest, they didn't have a great car that year. They just collected all the points when we had alternator failures and yeah. gearbox failures and yeah. ERS and all that. They just kept collecting points. So, yeah. I mean, for the long haul. If the exhaust got too hot, because the exhaust got a dent. If it gets too hot, because those exhausts are so thin, it melts a hole in it and you burn your body work, you're down. It was very close. There were so many oil pipes and water yeah. pipes just behind it, and how on earth they survived. It was so fortunate, because you see the you see state of the Yeah, when we stripped it out, you were like, how incredible. on earth did that ever survive yeah. this? You know, It couldn't keep going. No. If you tried that again, you, you know, sometimes you get a tiny little bump, and that's it, the car retires. And yeah. this one had most of its engine cover missing, and you know, pipes hanging off it, and the exhaust were dented, and oh, God. Yeah, but he drove, was, I've got to say, he drove a storming race to come back. Oh, yeah. Incredible. But his sound was quite fun on the radio. Yeah, I've had damage, but I am coming back. You know, I'm just continuing to go, and that's yeah. all you can do. So, yeah. But yeah, I'm sure there was a lot of water bottles and everything that got thrown around in the garage as well when yeah. when that happened. Because I'm sure most of us thought that's it. We're 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 over. You know, we'd been bog last in the wet weather like that. But at least in a lot of other tracks, you couldn't overtake. But at least in Brazil, you can. It's a decent yeah. track in it for overtaking. So. And watching him come back through the race, suddenly, oh, wow, this is, might be happening again. So it was a great emotional day, I think, at the end. Yeah. It was almost more rewarding winning that than the year before when you were so much in the lead and you win it with three, lap, three yeah. races to go, isn't it? Well, it was just great having championships where it was decided at right the at the end, end yeah. of the championship, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, it was still being fought over right to the end. And what made it even more it wasn't big margins was it it was small yeah. little margins yeah. 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 Oh. really small margins so how has the sport and the team changed I mean it's, it's changed massively I mean from a strategy point of view the sport's changed a huge amount in terms of the amount of data we've got in the past we used to have a little basically just read lap times off the TV feed now we've got timing data GPS data all the driver radio and all that kind of stuff so it's an awful lot more complicated than it used to be but, but I think the team itself has it's evolved so much compared to how it was when I first started. Uh, back in the day, it'd be like, you sort of do your work and then everyone would go off down the pub and uh, have a few beers and that kind of thing. And these days, it's, it's a lot more professional. I mean, we still have a lot of fun, but I think the whole attitude of the team has changed. Now everyone's, they finish work, they go for a run around the track. If you look at the infrastructure as well, we had two buildings. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many it is now, but you know, the whole campus almost here now is like a little village on its own. Yeah, and the sport mechanism we've got now is, is much better than, yeah. than it used to be. Yeah. But no refueling. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's made a big difference in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it has, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think that the whole attitude of the team is very different now. 
Yeah. Back in those days, it was like everyone's just there, like more or less, just doing what they need to do to get by, and, and it was all about having fun outside of the races. Whereas now, I think now there's a belief actually we can win, we can win races, and we can get paid. Don't you think that changed after '09 when we started to try and win races? You know, suddenly you, you know you've never won a race before. You look up at the people running to the mm. podium or not, and suddenly when you try to win races, it's such a an adrenaline and a drug, isn't it? That yeah. That, I'm sure that changes every team straight away. You want to win again. Mm. Yeah. We're not just there to make up the numbers. We're no. actually better. You know, before you got a fifth wins. place, you got, it was great. We collected some points. Yeah. But if you then won a race, there's no way you, you just want to do that again and again if you yeah. can. That Sunday atmosphere of winning a race and at the end, it's exciting. Mm. Yeah, even, even for people back in the factory, I mean, the elation is so great. You know, they want to be part of the team. They want to be, yeah. they want to be racing. They want to be championship winners. Yeah, I think getting getting people like Adrian uh, involved in the team as well changed everyone's the, the way we went about things. We had to become more professional to, just to keep up with what he wanted us to do. Yeah. So it sort of forced you into a situation where you just you had to do it. It wasn't. You gained it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no one wanted thing. to suffer the wrath of Adrian. <laughs> didn't no, but that's a good thing about Adrian. He's demanding and he expects yeah. certain standards. But that's good. Yeah, it is good that's exactly good because he drives you on. Mm. I seem to remember those when he started. He couldn't believe how long it took us to make an update. He's drawn already and released. Yeah. You know the infrastructure of the company was. It was like eight, yeah. ten weeks or something for, yeah. for a bodywork update. Where today they, you know, the whole the paint shop, all of the different departments, they all work a lot better together. I think to to make these updates happen. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot shorter time. Now. Yeah. And now I think we're probably the, the fastest in the pit lane from drawing board to actually on the car. I mean, we just. We evolved the whole manufacturing process, design and manufacturing process, so uh, to keep up with Adrian, really. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what that's what drove it. Yeah, yeah. Before you'd made it, it'd already be handing you the next piece of paper for the update, you know. So uh, it had to move at that pace, but that's why we developed probably better than anyone else. It is. It was an evolution race, exactly that, and we we, yeah. we do we evolve the car a lot quicker than any, than any other team. Proudest moment in F1 for me is. There's actually two. First of all, getting into F1 for a, a, a guy from not England, you know, coming from Denmark, that's a big, big moment because there's not a lot of us here. And Where then, have you employed you? <laughs> you did. <laughs> I don't know. You, it must have been a Monday, wasn't it? Hey? Yeah. <laughs> no, you did. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. I don't know why I'm still here then. <laughs> and then without any doubt in 2012 in Singapore to get selected to go up and collect the trophy uh, on the podium up there. My old man passed away a couple of races before and I think that was a Thanks for loyalty or whatever, because I stayed in Hungary that race. So yeah, definitely the two biggest days in, uh, in my motorsports career, for sure. Uh, mine, obviously, apart from winning uh, the World Championship, um, obviously, I'm really proud to be, to be working for Red Bull Racing. I'm glad to make the move from, from being just a humble mechanic technician from the racing into the position I've got now. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud to, to represent and help this team and the um, hope it continues. I think for me, it was, it's a bit like Ollie said really actually, going up on the podium, I think for me it was Brazil 2011, went up and uh, it was the last race of the year. We had a really good season and, and won the championship pretty comfortably that year. And just being up there on the podium, seeing all the rest of the team, you know, watching so weird and that along. It's so just, weird looking that way. You normally stand down and looking yeah. up and then suddenly you don't really know where to look, do you? Yeah. It was just so, such a great feeling and it just, Sort of a, a brilliant, you know, sort of combination of, of the last couple of years, uh, and the back-to-back championships that we've done, and it was just 
just felt really good. Felt really proud of it. I think, as, as everyone said, I think just the first World Championship, well, in fact, all four, but just the first one, just to feel part of something that I never thought would win races. You know, I've only ever been part of a team that's won one race in the past, you know, the Stuart Grand Prix. So it's, it's to be part of something that's won a World Championship is unbelievable. And then to do it four times, um, just to be part of the whole Red Bull ride has been, it's been great. Wow, some very special moments across our 300 races there. Thanks for coming on the podcast, guys. That's almost it for this special edition of Talking Ball. The guys talked about how we like the music loud in the garage. Well, turn this up, close your eyes, and imagine you're there right now. This is an exclusive track from Daily Chiefers called Try Me, featuring JK the Reaper. We'll be back with more action from the track, the paddock, and the factory very soon. Until then, take care. I don't know how to live, but I saw you how to die. I don't know how to live, but I saw you how to die. I don't know how to live, but I saw you how to die. I don't know how to live, but I saw you how to die. Yeah, give a f by the clear wrist on my watch way. Pull up on your block, the hood, I'm on my own set. I don't need security, do by my own self. I always need, but I don't need love. My life is a princess, so I always need drugs. If you wanna try me